judge, the tormentor, the workhorse, the taskmaster, the perfectionist, the controller, the guilt tripper, the destroyer, the underminer, the molder, the killjoy. <laughs> what are your names for the critic? Parent. The parent, <laughs> right? The critical parent, the inner parent, yeah, which is really what that voice is. Any other words? Beholder of the <laughs> beholder of the clipboard. Uh -huh. The teacher. The superego, right? The Freudian term. Judgment. Judgment. Mm -hmm. The left brain. So lots of different ways to describe, or at least try and point to this, this pattern, this voice, this sometimes seeming separate entity that lives inside us, lives inside our mind, that is tremendous uh, thief of happiness, thief of well-being, thief of peace, thief of knowing our goodness, thief of robbing us knowing about our true nature, which is not deficient, not wrong, not a problem, not lacking. Our nature in our essence is whole, is peaceful, is free. But if we listen to that voice, that's not what we hear. So uh, everything I learned about the critic I read from a book just kidding. <laughs> I happen to be very good bedfellows with my inner critic for some decades. And so this workshop comes out of two motivations. One, having been tormented by my own and the suffering and the pain and the distortion that comes from that. And two, because I've been teaching meditation for about 15 years. I've been therapist and coach for a dozen years. And I see how it's crippling for people. It's um, extremely painful and uh, a great cause for depression and unhappiness. And I, and I see it in this context in the spiritual meditation world I see it also comes in and undermines people's meditation, people's practice, people and people's understanding of themselves. And I tend to see it as the greatest cause of unhappiness that I encounter in people. There are many other reasons why we might be unhappy and struggling. But the inner realm, the inner landscape, I think, is so affected by this pattern, this mechanism that we have. So I feel really moved to teach about it, to bring awareness to it. And, I've, and so maybe the third reason why I teach about it is because when we bring attention to it, when we bring awareness to it, when we bring compassion and, 
discriminating wisdom to it, we can actually have a profound radical transformation in that relationship and therefore um, um, uh, an improvement in our well-being and our happiness. And I've seen this working with numerable people, um, that transformation. So that's the good news. The good news is, you know, change is possible. Sometimes we feel burdened and stuck because these patterns have stayed around for a long time. But just because they've been around for a long time doesn't uh, dictate how long it will be before they uh, no longer cause difficulty. That's the good news. I worked with one person um, who, she was in her maybe 40s, and uh, she just never looked at her. She, you know, as we often do, we just, we, we, we grow up with this voice and we just think it's just natural. It's just part of who we are. It's just the landscape. And then, she, you know, we did some work together and, and she was writing and was very critical of her writing. And so we did some work around the critic and it was just a revelation to actually take a step back as we do with mindfulness, with this quality of meta-awareness and go, well, and look at our mind from a from a distance or from an observational point of view. It's like, that's really inaccurate. And that's really miserable. And that's really distorted. And that just that turning that lens and 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 shifting the identification from that voice to to the observer, to awareness, actually just just profoundly like punctured the balloon and it never came back in the same way. Um, so that was a more radical turning around, and for most of us, it's usually slower, and we and it's a steady uh, practice in in recognition and uh, <laughs> being upstaged by squirrels and other things. <laughs> a practice in recognition and slowly disentangling the tangle. <clears throat> So I'm going to start with a few references to the Buddha, since we are in a Buddhist setting here. So the Buddha said once, all that we are arises with our thoughts. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Have you noticed that? With our thoughts we make the world. With our ideas and views and beliefs about what's happening, that's what we think is true, including ourselves but often it's just a belief, a story, an idea. It's not actually reality. He says, speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you like a shadow. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow and shakeable. So to look at how we uh, orient to the world and ourselves through our mind and to, and to watch our thoughts with care because they have so much influence about our reality and how we perceive reality. So you might think, well, the Buddha probably didn't have a superego. The Buddha probably didn't have a critic. Well, who knows, really, because who knows? But... In the texts, there is a, a personification of what I would call the critic, called Mara. Mara is basically the, the personification of the unconscious, the personification of 
um, the shadow, um, and also of death. And so he, he, he features, he has a cameo role throughout the Buddha's life. Uh, most significantly in the, light, the night of his awakening, the Buddha's t- sitting on his seat and has been going through all these really profound experiences and revelations prior to his awakening. And at that moment when uh, the light is about to dawn, Mara appears in the form in his mind, or symbolically, however that is. And first he tries to, to tempt the Buddha away like, like Satan does with Christ, um, you know, with riches and with, you know, why do you want to do that? You know, you could be, you could be a great king, you could be a great ruler. Um, so many different ways he tries to distract the Buddha, the Buddha to be, and then he 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 pulls his last resort when everything else has failed. He's tried to lure him with desire, with sensuality, with power, with fame. None of that works for the Buddha because the Buddha's resolute about his quest for awakening. And the last thing that Mara says is, he says, "Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to sit on this?" throne of enlightenment. Who do you think you are? By what right do you have to do this? Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> Who do you think you are to be sitting here right now at Spirit Rock when there's all this suffering in the world, when there's all the, all the different reasons why you shouldn't be here? What right do you have to be here right, as a human being? Right? So, so the story goes, and it's personified as by a lot of these these uh, mudras. This is um, uh, the earth-touching mudra, and the Buddha touches, puts his hand to the earth, and says, "The earth is my witness. The earth is my witness to be here. Like by my birthright, by my humanity, by being of this earth, I am worthy to be here." Very profound statement. I always feel moved when I think about that. That we have a right to be here. That we have a right to be happy. That we have a right to breathe, to live, to be full, to be human. It's our birthright. And no voice, no doubt, no shaming, no childhood conditioning has a right to take that away. that we are worthy. So, when Mara sees the Buddha's resoluteness, he disappears. But what's interesting is he comes back. This is what's interesting. Like the Buddha is, you know, fully awakened, fully enlightened, profoundly realized. And yet throughout the Buddha's life, he comes back even on his deathbed. And he'll, he would say to the, come back and say to the Buddha, you know, you should give up all this teaching. It's way too much work. Why don't you just go and live in the forest, have a quiet life? You don't need to create this great monastic order and this great body of teachings and become this great renowned world teach, spiritual teacher. Just kind of, you know, get back in the hammock and have a nice life. 
And every time the Buddha appears, Mara, at some point in the conversation, which is I would think of as a conversation in his mind, he says, oh, Mara, I see you. I see you. And then Mara gets really frazzled and fed up and disappears. <laughs> so the Buddha uses the, the light of awareness to see, oh, this is, my, this is the critic. This is the, this is the doubting mind. This is the self-doubting, distorted perception. And as soon as we see that with the light of awareness, we're no longer in the grip of it. It might still go on, but it doesn't matter if it goes on because we're not in the grip of it. So this speaks to the, the power of recognition, the power of our awareness to see, to recognize when we're in the grip and to see with that awareness, what's the consequences, what's the cost of listening to and giving attention to and energy to this voice? read you this quote, but I can't read it without my glasses. Maybe it's in that bag. Maybe it's in my car. Let me see how I can do here. (laughs) So this is from Almas, the founder of the Diamond Approach work, and where I draw a lot of my teachings from the critic, working with the critic. The problem is not that we want to be happy, but that we're going about it in the wrong way, which is exactly what the Buddha pointed to. When we really see that we are going about it in the wrong way, we quit, and then life can unfold on its own. We cannot make it unfold. We can quit our rejections and judgments and tolerances, but we will quit these patterns only when we completely and totally see what they are doing, that they are hurting us. We will only quit these patterns when we see the pain and the suffering they are causing. And that is very true with the critic, that until we really get how damaging, undermining, unconstructive, unuseful it is, we'll just keep listening to it and giving it authority and power. Sir Walter Scott, the great explorer once said, caught not the critic's smile, nor dread his frown. And I, I read that because the critic can have many different shapes and forms. And it can also uh, appear as our supporter, as our coach. Oh, good job. Well done. <laughs> Keep it up. Mine has an English. Mm. <laughs> kind of splendid. There's a cartoon that I read in reference to this uh, theme from this cartoon strip, Rhymes with Orange, wonderful cartoonist. And it's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. (laughs) See if you notice some of these habits. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Always a setup, that one. I once had a friend who had a mirror with a 10 times magnification mirror. (laughs) 
Like, good luck. Who's not going to look in that mirror and find, you know, blemishes and stuff? I managed to persuade it to get it down to, to times eight magnification. That was progress. We live embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Popular meditation pastime. <laughs> Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Right, so how many times a day will you look around the room and you, and you see someone like, mm, and you think, oh, that person knows how to do it. That person's closer to enlightened than I am. Damn it. <laughs> think about the people you regularly disappoint. And I, I, I add, especially people that share your last name. <laughs> and finally, uh, disregard compliments from, from people who supposedly love you. And there's a, there's a picture of a woman getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me, don't patronize me. <laughs> and then the last uh, cartoon says, um, uh, I'm doing this from memory. It goes, um, uh, believe from now on that this moment uh, will be forever. It's a setup for suffering. So I will, as you can see, I'll use uh, humor. I do use humor. Humor, I think, is one of the most effective strategies with our critic and our, and our mind because when, we're, when there's humor, there's, there's a little space and there's a little, there's a little disidentification, which means there's a little room to step back and, and see the folly and the silliness of what we do. And again, and, and not with a judgment, but just, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it is humorous what we do. It's also tragic, you know, Shakespeare pointed to. So the first thing I want to look at this morning, and we'll do, well, this work, this time will be very experiential. We'll do some exercises and inquiries with ourselves, with each other, some meditations. Um, so the first piece I want to, to look at is, is how the critic manifests and how to recognize the critic. So as we pointed to earlier, so the first way it manifests is this idea of perfectionism, which is a complete setup for misery because life isn't perfect, the world isn't perfect, nothing's perfect, or it's perfectly imperfect. Or as Suzuki Roshi once said, a great Zen teacher, you're completely perfect as you are, and we could all do with a little improvement. <laughs> but he first started with the perfection. We're perfect as we are, because we are, we are as we are. If we can come to recognize that and be at peace with that, that's a profound, liberating point of view. We are perfect as we are, because we are as we are. We couldn't be any different, because this is how it is in this moment. And mindfulness and these teachings are pointing to radical acceptance. Can I, be, can I allow this myself to be as I am right now and accept it completely? The critic, one of the critic's point of views comes as saying, it's not okay to be as we are. It's not okay to be human. It's not okay to have foibles. It's not okay, not okay to be imperfect. It's not okay to make mistakes. Which of course, from a logical, rational point of view, is silly because we're human and we do have foibles and mistakes and we have stuff. Right? It's part of being human. It's part of what makes us interesting is we have character and idiosyncrasies and quirks. I come from England, it's like incredibly quirky <laughs> culture. Look at John Cleese, you know, 
<laughs> I mean, but it's like we love we love that humor because it's it's character. <clears throat> this is from the poet Robert Bly. People like us. There are more like us all over the world. There are confused people who can't remember the name of the dog when they woke up. And people who love God but can't remember where he was when they went to sleep. It's all right. The world cleanses itself this way. Wrong number occurs to you in the middle of the night. You dial it. Ring just in time to save the house. And the second story man goes to the wrong address, gives the, gets the wrong address where the insomniac lives. And he's lonely and they talk. And the thief goes back to college, even in graduate school. You wander into the wrong classroom and hear great poems lovingly spoken by the wrong professor. <laughs> and you find your soul. Right? And life goes on. Right? And we think we're going down one track and we end down in a different road. And our critics say, no, it's the wrong way, wrong way, wrong way. And then this whole other thing unfolds in a beautiful way, right? How many times do you do that? Yeah. And life is weird and mysterious and twisting and turning and we can't know beforehand the journey. I notice I, I am a big lover of the outdoors and I hike and backpack a lot. And I notice my critic a lot when I'm out backpacking. I was actually recently backpacking. Some of you know this story. I was... Um, backpacking uh, in Tuolumne and I th it, was th it was the last weekend I, so I thought before the snow came in <laughs> <laughs> and the weather said, look, didn't look too bad looked sunny with chance of showers you know so okay not too bad I, I'll take that and and I and so I got up there and of course the, the chance of showers in the Sierras means who knows it could be anything and it turned out it was uh, rain for hours and hours and hours I got completely drenched and then it snowed uh, six inches of snow and it went down to 24 degrees. And I was completely unprepared and soaking wet. And my critic had a few things to say about that. <laughs> and then I woke up in the next morning. Here you go. And I woke up the next morning and it was pristine day like this. And all the mountains were, were covered in white dusted snow. I saw a bear walking through the campground, and it was just exquisite. And all that judgment and berating, and what I should have brought, and what I should have done, I should have checked the weather, and da 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 da. Who cares? <laughs> it was the most exquisite day I've had for years in the Sierras. So the critic often acts as the reminder that we're not doing it right, that we're not doing it as we should be, not doing it as other people think we should be. Happens a lot in meditation. Right? How many times are you sitting and you're with your breath, or you're with something, or you're not with something, because <laughs> you're somewhere else, because <laughs> you have a mind that likes to think, because right? you're human, and the critic's saying, no, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it bad. Everybody else has got it right except you, you dunce. The critic has perfect 2020 hindsight. <laughs> what do you know? It's so smart. The stock market crashes. You should have known. I look, it's obvious. I, isn't it obvious? You should have sold your house before it crashed. Why did you sell your house? It came back. Why did you sell those stocks? It came back. I told you. Someone else told you. Why didn't you listen? 
you never listened to me. Right? If we actually recorded the critic, this would be a really fun project. Record the critic. <laughs> got to invest in this thing. Got to sell that thing. And then five years later, got to do the opposite. <laughs> or you get stuck in traffic. Oh, I know I should have gone the other way. Why didn't you take the other, why didn't you go to the Bay Bridge instead of the Richmond Bridge? No, 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 no. Sound familiar? So with a critic, you can never win. Have you noticed that? Like, it will tell you something like, like, today's a good example, you know. Um, oh, why don't you sleep in? Because it's daylight savings <laughs> and good thing to do, you know. Give yourself, you'll be working hard, you know. Give, you know be nice to yourself. They say you've got to be nice to yourself. Be nice to yourself. <laughs> and then you sleep in, and then it's like, God, you wasted that morning. You had an extra hour. You could have done so much housework and all that pile on your desk. And right? There's no winning. Right? <clears throat> Again, notice this hiking. Hiking on my own because I went spontaneously and really enjoying that freedom of just getting in my car and going. And then halfway down the trail, how come we never come out with friends? Like, wh- wh- how you t- come you're doing this alone? Like, so you get to the top of the mountain, it's like really great, you know, to be at the, the view. I went up to the top of Mount Hoffman in moonlight, actually, did a moonlight hike, top of this 10,800 foot peak. Beautiful. And, um, and then the thought came oh, why'd you rush so much? Why, why'd you, like, what, you're a meditation teacher, you go slow. What's the big deal? <clears throat> So notice, notice when, when your critic takes the voice of the encouraging coach, meditation coach, your, your sports coach, your, right? that's seemingly on your side, good boy, good girl, keep doing it, go well, but very quickly just slams to, did it wrong, did it badly. And of course, the more we listen to the, the encouraging coach, we're giving the, the critic authority and it will have more impact when it slams to the judgment. So I'd say the most common voice that I notice with the critic is, oh, maybe I'll take a poll, but is uh, you're not good enough. You're not enough. And fill in the blank. You are not smart enough, mindful enough, rich enough, busy enough, relaxed enough. You fill in the blanks. You know, there's the endless tirade of how we're not enough. We live in a culture of deficiency. And we believe it. Whether it's in our academic performance, our work performance, our relationship performance, our sexual performance, our, you know, anywhere. It, it comes, it will manifest in every part of our life if we believe it. So I was working in this company, was do some consulting, some consulting, some mindfulness consulting with this company. Some people, it's in a hedge fund. Uh, this was in the glory days of hedge funds, uh, pre-crash, and they were on a roll. This particular company it was boom time, and uh, the one of the traders, one of the main traders, had made a particularly skillful set of trades, and it culminated in this day that they'd sold and made million, tens of millions of dollars this particular transaction. 
and I was working with with uh, one of the, this particular trader who'd, who'd been responsible for this engineering these deals and um, and I, I expected to see him happy right you'd make you know not every day you make your, you know tens of millions of dollars in not personally but for your company and he looked really stressed and anxious and not very happy and I said what's going on I hear you the, you know, the buzz on the street is you've you know had a really successful day and he said well you know I knew I could have bought it earlier and held on for a few more hours and sold it for a little more and it wasn't enough because it's never enough from that criteria it's never enough I see this when I when I'm especially when I'm traveling and I'm looking at the the magazine stands <laughs> and the you know whether it's bodybuilding or body beautiful or people magazine that's one week talking about how cute people are in bikinis and the next week talking about the um what's the thing the you know how too skinny they are or anorexic or whatever it is the, the, the way our culture likes to build people up and then slam them down it's the critic at large the critic manifests culturally socially so how many, pla- how many places in your life do you not feel enough where do you feel where do you not feel where do you feel insufficient so one of the places I hear this a lot is with parenting any parent here feel like they're a good enough parent? <laughs> or there's not some place where they are not, you know, could do more. Right? This is from Annie Lamott. Anne Lamott. I'm probably just as good a mother as the next repressed, obsessive, compulsive paranoiac. <laughs> so lastly, what I want to say about this is uh, looking at the difference between judgment and discernment. And this is a really commonly overlooked point that there are differences uh, in the way that we can evaluate something. So, for instance, say you sit down to meditate and your concentration is really distracted, and you're, you're stressed about something, you're worrying about something, so most of the meditation is busy thinking about you know, some work problem or relationship worry. And you can, at the end of the meditation, you can discern, oh, I was really distracted most of the time. I was, my concentration was quite poor. It was, quite, was lacking. You know? And it doesn't have any emotional-laden tone. It's just, it's just an observation. Whereas a judgment, in the, in, the, in the way that I'm using judgment here, which has an emotional tone, which also is implying something about your very being, which is an attack, will say something like, well, that was just terrible. That was a hopeless meditation. That was pathetic. I mean, my, my, my concentration sucked. And really, I sucked. And you see the difference? They're both evaluating the same phenomena, the same event, but one has a one is one is a dis- one's more descriptive, and and pointing to the data, and one is pointing to the what it means about you as a human being, as in you're less, you're less worthy, you're wrong, you're bad, 
there's something wrong with you for getting distracted. So because we don't, I'd say because we don't (coughs) bring enough awareness to the critic and bring it into relief, bring it into clarity, we, and because we have all kinds of beliefs about why it serves us, which I'll talk about later, we just let it kind of follow us around like a puppy and say what it wants and go on and on and on about all the ways that we're wrong and deficient all the time. And we don't do much about it except listen to it and get, feel, feel beaten down. So the analogy I give is imagine your best friend was that puppy walking around just you know, on your shoulder and saying, driving a bit fast. Shouldn't talk on your cell phone when you're driving. Left a bit late, didn't you? That was a bad parking job. <laughs> God. Stop rushing, you're on your way to the meditation hall, relax. You don't have to sit in the front row, relax. Okay, you always drink so much tea. How come you drink so much tea here? If, if our friend was saying that, we would like put up with that for like two seconds, hopefully, and like, excuse me, <laughs> uh, did I ask for your opinion? And that's not actually that accurate anyway. And you've told me that 15 times before. Just, uh, just, just thank you. Enough. Be quiet, right? right? So we would do that with anybody else, mostly, in our lives. But we don't with our own internal voices. We let them go on and on and on and on. And especially if we do something that we're, you know, we're ashamed of, you know, say we let somebody down, we forgot someone's birthday, or, you know, what happens that we'll just replay that fifty times a day, and we don't think to say, okay, I, I, I heard it the second time, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> yeah, I feel bad about that, thank you, I'm going to learn, I'll do better next time, put it in my calendar, da da da. So. You know, that distinction is, is interesting in that, well, it's just instructive of how we let the critic run our lives, or particularly run our mind. And so that's partly what we want to take a look at today. Hmm. So this is an message for Katie in the office. Uh, We need uh, lots of um, paper and pencils. Um, So if you have, so we're going to be doing some writing down in a minute. So other ways that you notice your critic manifesting, people just want to shout out. I've mentioned a few, not enough. Insufficiency. Just inhibiting trying new things so that you don't want to look bad. Yeah, inhibiting trying new things because you don't want to look bad. Yes. Yes, it keeps us small and keeps us safe. Mm-hmm. Okay. What else? Driving. So who needs a backseat driver, right? Because you've got your, your internal driver. Uh-huh. Not deserving. Not deserving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not worthy to receive this. Catastrophizing, mm-hmm, yep, 
thinking about the worst possible scenarios. What else? Yes. Unable to have a clear perspective. Yeah. Yeah. We get lost. How dare you? Right. How dare you? Who are you? Yeah. Fear. Fear. Mm-hmm. Brings fear or is a voice of fear? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Brings fear. Mm-hmm. Guilt. Guilt. Right. Guilt. The shaming voice. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you said that. What a jerk. What a jerk. Right, so it's sometimes harsh, sometimes with a lot of uh, abusive, yeah. Sometimes with a lot of swear words in it. <laughs> Don't eat that. Creative block. Yes. How many? How many? How many writers or artists are there here? Right. How how many people have been crippled by their critic? Right. I remember writing, I was in a poetry writing phase for some years recently, and um, I chose not to show anybody because it was really from myself. It was really from my own process. I loved it. It was very rich. It was my morning practice time. And then at some point, people wanted to start hearing it or seeing it, so I started sharing it. And of course, you know, when you share it, you put yourself, you're vulnerable to, to feedback and um, people's criticisms. And... And I, I noticed that the critic can go either way. It can be external critic, inner, inner critic. We're mostly working with the inner critic, but the outer critic so easily triggers the inner critic, and therefore my writers, I just, I just went straight into writer's block very, very easily. So yeah, the creative, the creative block, very, very important to, to see how that shuts that down. So put your hand up if you're needing a piece of paper or something to write with. <coughs> Don't have enough pens. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah. So, the reason you're getting paper and pens is not to grade the instructor. Uh, It's to uh, write down, we're going to be writing out a list of your mm, top 10 tunes, the top 10 judgments that come to you. And before you start writing, I just want to say a couple of things and the re- why, why I'm doing this. As I was mentioning, because these voices in our head are so, they're like our living room furniture, we don't notice them. It's just so part of the fabric that it's really hard to get clear about them. And when we, write, when we write things down, we bring in a different form of discernment with our mind than when something's going around in our head. We don't see it so clearly when it's bouncing around here, but when it's on paper, we bring a different kind of um, discrimination. And so it's helpful to write them down. One, because you want to see, well, what actually are these voices that keep tormenting me every day and how many are there and sometimes it feels like there's just this this just like this orchestra of people in there a boardroom um and then when we come to write them down it's actually there's not that many there's maybe four or five or maybe there's or maybe we don't think there's that many out in there and we come to write them down wow it's got 53 things 
you know. So it doesn't matter what the number is. It's, what's important is you start to clarify, well, what, what, are, the, what are these things trying to say? What, what are the ways I talk to myself? Um, and if you can, try not to censor, just write them down. You don't need to share them with anybody. We will be doing some process of sharing, but that's completely voluntary. Um, so, top ten judgments that you have about yourself. Top ten self-judgments. And it may not be ten, but start with just whatever comes to mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.